0: Well, Sanctus Church, good morning to you. Let's try that again. Good morning, Sanctus Church. There we are. Good morning. So glad you're here. To so you in Pickering, Port, uh, Port Perry, and Bowmanville and beyond. So glad you're here. Welcome to this brand new series out of the book of Jonah. My first encounter with Jonah, because I actually did grow up in the church community, was in Sunday school when the ancient times uh, were used felt boards. Anyone remember those? And so there was Jonah, and there was a whale, and there was a bunch of people, and we would like throwing Jonah into the whale's mouth, and we'd all cheer, which is very disturbing now in reflection. Anyway, uh, that was my upbringing. But uh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, uh, I was actually in the nation of Israel. We had flown all night. We arrived in the morning, and uh, before we got to Tel Aviv, we were taken to the ancient city of Jaffa. I didn't know where we were, I just knew it was sunny and beautiful, and there was the ocean in front of me, it was jet lagging. and so we sat down, looking like like tourists as we were, and behind me was this uh, fountain that wasn't working with an ugly whale. And I kept looking at it going, why is there an ugly whale there, and why is there a fountain? And then people kept coming and taking photos of the whale, and like, why are these people taking photos of terrible art? I don't understand what's going on. So that God gets up and says, hey, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Welcome to Israel. You can just see Tel Aviv right over there. We're in the ancient city of Jaffa. And if you know your Bible, and I was like, oh no, oh no, I'm a pastor. What have I done already? Uh, if you know your Bible, you're in the town of Joppa. I'm like, I'm still not registering. She's like, you're literally standing in the environment, the spot where Jonah ran from God. And I'm like, oh, the whale. Thank God no one asked me. I'd lose my job. Um, and, and, and this is where Jonah ran from. Now, the question we need to all ask this morning is this. How can this biblical account speak to us today and help us in the day and age we're living in, in 2020? The book seems old and disconnected and probably not life-transforming, but I would just like to stop, whether you're a guest or you belong to this church, you're a seeker, a skeptic, or a long-term believer, and I'd like to review where we are as a culture. I just finished a book called The Death of Truth. And it reveals so much of where we are right now. Politically, we're fraying at a dangerous rate. And listen to how one person summarizes a group of thoughts that really tell us where we're at. One person wrote, Common ground between citizens from opposing political parties is rapidly shrinking. The whole idea of consensus is becoming a thing of the past. In the United States in 2016, Pew surveyed thousands of people And the results were striking. 45% of Republicans viewed Democratic policies as a threat to their nation, and 41% of Democrats said the same thing about the GOP. And the animosity goes way beyond some policy dispute. It's personal. 70% of Democrats think Republicans are fundamentally closed-minded. 47% of Republicans think Democrats are literally as people immoral. And 46% of Republicans think Democrats are lazier than the rest of the nation. And we're all sitting up here going, well, that's not my problem. I'm Canadian. I just watch CNN for fun. It's so fun. Stop. It's not better up here. Abacus just did a major study that says one in four Canadians hate their political opponents. And the reality is we tend not to be in relationship with people that are not like us. And through social media targeting, we now are only given information within our worldview, which isolates us even more, even though we think we're being open-minded. And let's just talk about social media for a moment. Tim Wu, in his book, The Attention Merchants, outlines how online companies and groups learned the art of things going viral about 15 years ago. And what's the secret sauce to make something go around the world online? Well, it's to post things that cause emotions of wow or ah, outrage or anxiety. So if you post something that makes you go, oh, or wow, or I hate you, or I'm scared, it goes viral. So basically online, we're always on edge all the time. Oh, and then there's something that very few people are talking about that we need to. There's now something called the death of expertise. In 2007, Andrew Keene, a Silicon Valley business leader, wrote the book called The Cult of the Amateur. And he wrote, The wisdom now of the crowd is dangerously blurring the lines between fact and opinion, informed argument, and blustering and speculation. Thomas Nichols Nichols himself wrote a book called The Death of Expertise. He says, every opinion on any matter is as good as anyone else's. Simply put, ignorance now is fashionable. You don't need a PhD anymore. You just need Facebook and you can say anything you want and you know what you're talking about. So we hate each other. We only hear what we want. We're always high on, wow, I hate you. I'm freaking out. Everyone's an expert. Everyone's got a podcast. Every voice supposedly is equal and matters, even though most of us have no freaking clue what we're talking about. Oh, and then let's talk about this. Fake news is actually real. And it is damaging us as a culture. Pope Francis stood up recently and he said this. There is no such thing as harmless disinformation. Trusting and falsehood can have dire consequences. So all of, us, all of this leads us to a bitterly divided time, the rise of tribalism, the reemergence of angry nationalism, the fear of change, partisan silos, sectarian lines, the fear of the outsider, and basically what's starting to happen is we're involved in what they call othering. And then here we are as Christians. In the most multicultural city on earth, one of the largest cities in North America, a global hub, and supposedly, as Christians, we're supposed to live with grace and truth. We're never allowed to lie or promote lies or support those who do promote lies, and we're called to love our neighbor. And at the same time, if that's not complicated enough, we still have to say to our culture, that's sin, and God says no, and you can't do that. So what do we do? And how do we even get out of the holes that we don't even know we're in? Well, the answer is the flannel board. The answer is The Ugly Whale Fountain, one of the most significant little books that will help seekers understand and followers of Jesus get racism, race, nationalism, different religions, evangelism, God's mercy, love, and justice, our role in the world, our role in the GTA, while at the same time confronting and rooting out our own biases and hate and still calling sin sin, well, it's the little book called Jonah. You're like, really? I thought it was a whale. No, so much more. Jonah, by the way, was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel whose predecessors, if you know the Old Testament, were Elijah and Elisha. His contemporaries were Hosea and Amos. And we don't discover him first in the book of Jonah. We discover him in 2 Kings. In 2 Kings 14, it says Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned for 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of God and did not turn away from any of the sins committed by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to sin, uh, commit. He was one that restored the boundaries of Israel from Labo Hamath to the Sea of Arabia in accordance with the word of God that God of Israel spoke through his prophet or servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. Now, let me just start here. At this moment in history, the people of God are divided. They had a civil war. There are now two nations, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel in the north perpetually compromised against God, involved other religions, did all sorts of sexual things that were forbidden, and still tried worshipping God on the side. The people in the south have a mixed history, but there's more faithfulness down there. Now, interestingly, Jonah is from the north. And so when Jonah starts saying, well, God's going to expand the boundaries of this wicked king, everyone in the south will be like, of course he's going to say that. He's from the north, and why would we trust anyone from the north anyway? Because there are a bunch of compromised all sorts of things I won't say at church, Right? Why listen to him? Now, here's lesson number one, five minutes into the sermon. God chooses who he chooses. And God speaks through people we struggle with. We want God's message, but sometimes we don't like his messenger. Be careful. God chooses who he chooses. The message is what matters. So Jonah shows up from the wrong side of the tracks He's serving between 786 and 747 BC, 25 years from this moment. Israel in the north is going to be wiped out by the Assyrians because of sin, but we're not there yet. And here's how the story begins, whether you know it or not. Jonah 1.1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. So God chooses Jonah. Jonah doesn't choose God. And God speaks to him and calls him, this is direct, this is God's will, you are going to be my spokesperson, prophet, ambassador. Now let us you see the power of this. We all the time in church circles say, if God would only speak to me directly, then everything would be so clear and I would quickly obey. Really? Really? The pattern much of the time in scripture and in our own lives is God speaks directly and his presence shows up in the room and suddenly the faithful aren't so faithful anymore. Right? Jonah's name is very helpful for us to understand the book. Jonah means dove. And this should take you right back to the time of Noah because when God's judgment on the earth was over, a dove was sent out and brought back an olive branch as a sign of God's peace. So his name means dove or peace and Amittai means truth or God's truth or teller of truth. So literally in Jonah's name, you see his assignment. He is the one who will bring the peace of God and the end of judgment and the truth telling of God. Jonah 1, two, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Their sin is so much and so bad. It's like a garbage dump. The smell is so disgusting. It's literally wafted into God's throne room and he cannot take it anymore. So he says, Jonah, go. Simple, all-consuming word that changes his life. And by the way, it's not an option. It's a command. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Nineveh. Now, even if you grew up in church, we, I don't think, understand the power of this. This command is the worst thing Jonah could hear. It's dangerous, and he would say quickly, in a reaction type way, it's wrong. Nineveh was the great capital of the great Assyrian Empire. The royal city was about 550 miles from Jerusalem. If you want to understand it in your head today, it's 220 miles north of Baghdad today. And over 270 years, over two periods of time, it dominated the Middle East and was considered a terrorist state and wreaked havoc all the time. The empire was Israel's chief enemy, powerful, well-developed, and in the time of Israel, at this moment, Israel's already paying what they call tribute taxes. So if you've ever seen an old mob movie, this is what this is like. Assyria shows up and says, you need our protection. And if you don't pay, we'll kill you. So already, God's people are paying for protection they don't really want or need, but they must. But to actually understand how terrifying this is, how awful this is, how evil this is, let me read another person's summary of what the Assyrians were known for. Assyrian kings, he writes, often record result of their military victories like this. They had pride and they gloated and sang songs of whole plains littered with ripped up corpses of the dead. They sang about burning cities to the ground. One of the greatest emperors is well-known for depicting torture, dismemberment, and decapitation of enemies in grisly detail on large stone relief panels all through their capital. Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling as you could read and know. And let me tell you how bad it was. After capturing enemies, the Assyrians had something they did. They would cut off both of your legs and cut off one of your arms, but they'd leave your other arm and hand there so they could shake your hand to mock you while you lay dying and bleeding out. And they did this to thousands of people at a time. They would force when they'd walk into a city, family and friends to watch their loved ones be decapitated. They'd put the heads of their decapitated family members on spikes and make the family members parade up and down the streets, celebrating the death of their family. Regularly, they burned teenagers alive for fun. They would pull out prisoners' tongues, and even more disgusting, regularly, the Assyrian army would stretch out bodies of their enemies so they could skin them alive and then would take the human skins of body and hang them on the walls to celebrate their victory. And those who survived all that lived under horrific, dangerous slavery the rest of their lives. So this person writes, the Assyrians today would be considered a terrorist state. Years later, when the empire finally collapsed, it's the prophet Nahum who celebrates like this. In Nahum 319, everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall. For who has not felt you're ready? Endless cruelty. So God says to Jonah, go to the capital of all that craziness and speak against that. Now don't miss this. Jonah already gets something that most of us don't understand. This is a call for relationship and restoration with these people. See, God always does this. God always shows up in a room and shows human beings their wickedness and their sin, not just so they know they're condemned, but so he can show them mercy because God is inclined after holiness to be love. Well, Jonah very quickly understood the call. He, of course, knew God did not change his mind. This call would not go away. And he would just say things like, this is radical, this is crazy, this must not happen, this must stop. And it's not just because they're not Jews, which is bad enough because, again, non-Jews are dogs spiritually. But another person put it this way that might help our modern mind. How long, for example, would a Jewish rabbi called by God have lasted in 1941 if he had stood on the streets of Berlin and called on Hitler and the whole Nazi party to repent? At the most practical level, the prospects for success, none, chance of death, high. But it's not just, oh, I'm going to die, I don't want to do this. It's not just, oh, those people aren't part of God's people, I don't care about them. They were evil. And they did not deserve God's love or forgiveness. Deeper, I guarantee Jonah was thinking, this is bad, God. Let me be a PR agent for you. You need some help. If you do this, if you forgive these people, your reputation, your holiness, your justice, you've lost it. So with all these facts in place, the path is clear for Jonah. I'm out. So Jonah ran from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now I'd never caught this, but in Jewish rabbinical interpretations of Jonah, almost all rabbis thought Jonah was incredibly wealthy because this trip cost so much money. One person said to flee from God like this, Jonah would have sold his home and left everything he had behind to go and risk his life. If you think about Jesus' story on the prodigal son, this is like the reverse thing happening where the older son, not the younger son, runs away because he does not love the mercy of God. So he's off to Tarshish. And we're like, well, where in the world is that? Oh, it's where all of us want to go right now. It's the beautiful southern beaches of Spain. That's where it is. It's on the opposite side of the known world. So he sells his house, puts on his Speedo, and let's get to Spain. I'm out. And the anti-hero is celebrated. He's the only prophet, by the way, who's run away from God in the scriptures. But he knows who God is, right? I mean, Psalm 139.7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? But running from God here isn't just about God is everywhere. Omnipresence. If you read Jonah really carefully, as I've been doing, I was struck. Jonah's running from the temple. The guaranteed place of encounter between him and God and heaven and earth. See, unlike so many other books, Jonah time and time again refers to the temple in God's presence. So he says, I am going to run away as far as I can from the guaranteed place of encounter called the temple. And that's when I was sitting there months ago in Israel in the hot sun where the guide told me that Jopa, Jaffa, now connected to Tel Aviv, is the closest port to Jerusalem. To get out, So off he went on his Mediterranean cruise, but God will not be brushed aside or ignored. The Bible says God is the potter, we're the clay. He is God. We are not, uh, we are created. He is uncreated. And so it says the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. Such a violent storm arose. The ship threatened to break it up. It actually says in another translation, literally like God threw a storm at the boat. The sailors who were professionals did this all the time, had experienced brutal storms, knew this was dangerous and unnormal. It says all the sailors were afraid. Verse 5, each cried out to his or her own God uh, and, threw, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Now the crew was from every nation on earth, connected to many gods. So they prayed to see which one might have the answer. They knew this was unnatural, supernatural, and they're trying to find out what deity is responsible. So they pray, and well, nothing happens. And they throw cargo in the sea, and nothing happens. And where is Jonah? Is he praying and begging and interceding and helping them throw off the stuff? No, no, no. He's not just snoozing or drifting. He is in a profoundly deep sleep. Why? Exhausted? Yeah. But much deeper than that, this is escapism. This is temporary relief from God and sin. It's what the famous Scottish pastor Hugh Martin called the sleep of sorrow. Oh, some of you know it. You'd prefer to sleep than face reality. You know it because you binge Netflix instead of facing reality. It's why so many people are drunk all the time, not just because it's fun because reality's just too much. Well, the captain went down and found him and said, how can you sleep, get up and call upon your God? Maybe he'll take notice of us and we're not going to all die. In a panic state, the captain is yelling at Jonah, pray. Your God could be behind all this. We might hit the right God. This is like divinity roulette. Let's see with the slot machine who will show up. Now, the ironic thing is this, and I had never caught it. Jonah is living at this moment among idol-worshiping pagans. He's running away from God and run right into God's mission to love the whole world once again. And what does he do? I mean, this is the most amazing time to witness, right? This is the most amazing time for a prophet of God who knows God to show these lost people who God is and demonstrate the power of God and the love of God. What does Jonah do? Nothing. He remains silent, he is so angry. Well, then the sailors said to each other, come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. Jo- Jonah said nothing. Well, they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Both Jews and non-Jews use lots all the time. We see it in Joshua for Samuel, the book of Acts. Proverbs sixteen thirty-three. the lot is cast in the lap, but it's, it's every decision is from God. So they go back to the silent, angry one in the corner and they ask him, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for, notice us, what do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? Now, now, don't forget the context. If this was a movie, it'd be much more dramatic. This investigation is happening literally as massive waves are crashing over the ship. It is literally about to break apart. Fear, anger, anxiety, panic. And what is your race? What are your people? And of course, because nationality is not separated from divinity, what God is connected to your people? Well, I'm, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who (sighs) made the sea and the land. Oh, the response tells us so much. I didn't catch it for years. Listen to what another wrote. Since Jonah identifies himself first ethnically, then religiously, we may infer that his ethnicity is foremost in his self-identity. This is why he didn't want to love his neighbor. This is why he had no time for his enemies. They're not me, and they're my enemy. See, his identity should be in his relationship with God first, then his nationality, but it's not. I'm a Jew who, oh, by the way, knows God. By the way, anytime you put your core identity in your skin color, your tribe, your background, you will always end up hating someone else, and you will always commit the sin of idolatry, because at the end of the day, we are made to turn on each other in our sin. Only when your identity is in God do things become different. But yet in this mixed moment, He still summarizes one of the best orthodox statements in all of scripture. Oh, I worship God. Oh, he's the Lord God. Uh, The God of heaven, that's his name. And he's the ultimate source and the ultimate deity and this ultimate source of all power and authority. And yeah, he created the sea and the land. Stunned, they were like, you declared war on that deity? Who? That one? This terrified them. Oh, did you catch it? This statement terrifies them more than what? The ocean. What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? And in this moment, did he repent? No. Uh, Maybe he thinks he's gone too far. Actually, more likely, he's so angry against what God has done. He would rather die than obey God even though he is loyal to God. Just pick me up. Just pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm, because I know it's my fault that the great storm has come upon you. The only way to deal with this appropriate, justified, God-given wrath is for me to give my life, because my sin has now affected everyone. And there's nothing I can do to change this. And by the way, this is the first inkling that's going to help us this whole series. Once again, we see the idea of substitution appear. I'm going to take the bullet. I'm going to give my life for your life. I'm going to take the storm so you don't have to take the storm. Well, they don't like this answer. They feel trapped. They don't want to kill a person because maybe if they kill the guy, even though the guy has been stupid with his God, maybe that God will consider them murderers. So they're like, no, we can't have anything to do with this. So in their own power, they try more. Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land. They could not. The sea grew even wilder than before. And they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, please don't let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. They tried everything. Calling on their gods didn't work. Lightning the ship didn't work. And asking to Jonah to pray, he wouldn't do it. Casting lots, well, we find out where the problem is. Asking Jonah for advice, kill me. Rowing, pleading, nothing. Blackness to the north, south, east, west. Salt in the eyes. No way out of this. And so... Whether it's one or two or three sailors, sailors grabbed Jonah. I wonder if he closed his eyes. I wonder if he thought about his childhood. I have no clue if he prayed or cursed God or whatever. But here's what the point is. At this moment, they threw him into the ocean. And it says in verse 15, right when he touches the raging ocean, he goes down, but the scene grows calm. At this, the men greatly feared God, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him Now, We don't catch this in English, and it really matters. Amazingly, these non-Jews, these pagans, use a name for God. It's not Elohim, the God who's out there, but we don't really know, but he's all-powerful. It's not an unnamed God. These pagans use Yahweh, God's marriage name, God's covenantal name. And they make a vow to him, and they sacrifice to him. See, here's the amazing thing. Did they still believe in all their gods? Of course they did. But now they knew that there was one above all other gods. And amazingly, these pagans, who hours before knew nothing about the God of the Hebrews, now acknowledge him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the God Almighty. Now here's the wild part of the story. As the good news goes towards Spain, because a group of people have encountered the living God, the good news also heads back towards Nineveh. Because God's mercy was stronger than Jonah's escapism, rebellion, and sin. So what does God do for Jonah? Well, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside for three days and three nights. Oh, by the way, just it's a pet peeve, fish, not whale, fish. And so he sits here and he's saved. Why? Because God loves Jonah. Really? Yeah, God loves Jonah. What else? God loves his own glory. And God loves his own plans because God's plans always bring his glory and our freedom. And so he also saves Jonah because he deeply cares for those terrorist-like state Ninevites. And also we begin to see a hint of Jesus, but that's for next week. So we're only a few verses in. We need to ask these questions, not, oh, isn't that interesting, I learned more information about some historical thing. No, 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 that's great, but what is the spirit of the living God, the God of Jodah, found in Jesus through the spirit, saying to us as a church in the GTA, in this moment, in this time, in 2020? Well, again, what I love about this church, this church is filled with people that regularly come who are not Christians, You're seekers and skeptics from other faiths, no faith at all, or you have Christian and label only, but you're not sure, and you're here struggling and wondering and wandering, and sometimes you're like this, and sometimes you're like this, and sometimes you don't care, but you're here. What is God saying to you today? Well, this is the the introduction to a conversation. Life without God found in Jesus is like living on that boat. Much of the time, life is an uncontrollable storm. We all know that. And sin and brokenness is like a heavy burden. And notice, and this is so important, that sincere prayers and good works, no human work overcomes the God-given storm. Lighting the boat didn't work. Praying to other gods didn't work. And this is such a picture of all the attempts we have. Religion, humanism, and spirituality. Religion says if I work really hard and I do all these religious things that God might pay attention to me and love me. But that's you-centric. Humanism says, no, no, I'm going to make the best of my life because I'm going to get educated and I'm going to be a business person or fill in the blank and I'm going to, but that's you-centric. And spirituality says, I'm going to do hot yoga and meditation and I'm going to buy every self-help book and I'm going to find my inner purpose. And no, no, that's you-centric. Every single time human beings try to avoid God's given wrath and mercy, we cannot do it because religion fails just like trying to lighten the boat. Spirituality fails because it's like false prayers. And humanism fails because we don't have the gas in the engine to save ourselves. Many of us are even like Jonah, running to the other side of the world, trying to plunge ourselves into sex or money or power or whatever it is, just to run away. Listen, the living God of heaven and earth who knows you and created you through this moment, whether you like it or not, He's starting a conversation with you to say to you that there is a way to be saved and loved, changed and transformed and have peace. But it takes encountering Jesus the Son. Come for the whole series. It's going to get more interesting and better for you. Lots of us here are followers of Jesus. Lots of us genuinely are, it's not just an inheritance, it's a real thing. And and what is the Spirit of God saying to us? Okay, well, let me just start here. Who are you really? I mean, honestly, where is your identity? Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew who knows God. Let me say this again. If you build your core identity in anything before Jesus, it is trouble. Your core identity is not Canadian, American, Nigerian, Jamaican, your core identity is not even man, woman. Your core identity is not in all the mistakes you've made, sin. Your core identity is not in the pain you've experienced. Your core identity is not because you're smart or beautiful or, you, or culture thinks you are ugly. Or it's, No, no, no. The list could be good or bad. Here's the point. Your core identity is you are a child of God and a friend of God found in Jesus and found in his mercy. The, this is where we have to live from. This is how we have to see ourselves because if we make anything else our core identity, we will turn on people we are called to love. Now, this brings us to the uh oh moment in the sermon. You're like, that's not the uh oh moment? No, this is. Who do you mistrust? Who don't you like? And who do you hate? Oh, let me tell you, it's Trump. I mean, honestly, what a, mm, no, 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 no. Let me tell you, it's teachers. If they could just get off the picket lines and do their job. They've got the whole summer off. No, no, it's white people. You have no clue what white people, no, no, it's black people. I walk in a room and before I can say anything, all their history comes up and I don't even get to speak. No, no, it's those immigrants. Coming into our country, no, 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 it's Muslims. They say they're a religion of peace. But let me tell you, no, no, it's the gay community. Have you seen the agenda, what they're trying to teach our children? No, don't even get me started about Justin Trudeau. No, no. The NDP are crazy. No, it's Rob Ford. I just want to, oh, no, I'm Indian. Let me tell you what the Pakistanis keep doing. No, no, I'm Armenian. The Turks have never admitted what they did to our people 100 years ago. I'm an Aboriginal. Don't even get me started. and it's all in this room, and it's in every room I'm preaching to. You're sitting beside people, right? You're sitting beside people who are Christian. You're like, oh, oh, they agree with me. No, they don't. I know this because I watch your feeds and make zero comments. You should learn from my example. Side note. Even self-hate is in this church. I don't deserve God's love. You don't know what I've done. You know, listen, fear and pride are at the center of hate and grieving the spirit. Let me tell you why you don't deserve my love, and you definitely don't deserve God's love. Now, the first group, and all the groups I've mentioned above, have sin. Different sin, but sin. By the way, truth is not gray, it's absolute. And notice, God tells Jonah to go and confront Nineveh of their sin. This post-truth thing is a lie. There is sin. It is wrong. But God sent Jonah to preach to this terrorist-like state so they would be saved, that they would know God, the God that knew Jonah. He sent Jonah to love his neighbor. Who do you honestly in your core think does not really deserve God's love like you? See, to understand this, no one's going to get away with Sin. Trust me, I'm pre- the next series after Jonah is on heaven and hell. You think this is, get ready. No one's going to get away with sin. But God tends to call us to people we want nothing to do with so they actually become our brothers and sisters and we're reminded we're no different than them. And the mercy that God had on us, God wants to give to our enemy. And here's the real uh-oh a moment. Your pain, whether it's perceived or real, and your sin and your political view and your ethnic background can never be stronger than the mercy of God for the person you cannot stand. Because I read a Bible that says, for God so loved what? The world. Not just people who look like John Thompson or people who look like you. We are positioned in the most Multicultural city on earth. We're the fourth largest city in North America. I've said this, if God touches Toronto, overnight the world is touched. Because the world is here. But the world is fraying on our doorstep and we are participating in the fraying and missing the opportunity to be like an obedient Jonah and change the world. So let me stop with this. Let me read a real historic account of something that happened in 1907. There was a revival that broke out at a Bible conference in Pyongyang, which of course now is the capital of North Korea. Those attending the conference came under deep conviction of sin, especially when the Korean pastor called the Korean church to repent of their traditional hatred of Japanese. Of course the Koreans had accepted the fundamental truth of the gospel. Yes, that I'm saved by grace. And yet, the truth of the grace of God had not sunk deep enough for them to forgive the Japanese. Because the Koreans felt morally superior to a nation that they saw as oppressive and cruel. And at points, true. But in the light of the gospel of Jesus... The Koreans at the conference saw that they stood before God as equally sinful and equally condemned with every other human being, including the ones who, that had oppressed them, and that they had been rescued by the sheer costly grace of Jesus. And as they admitted this, this dry, drained away their pride and their bitterness. Well, what happened next is nothing but shocking. They returned to their homes with a new openness to the Spirit, And they began almost unnaturally to repent of wrongdoing. People went house to house, repairing relationships, returning stolen articles. The worship services were filled with the new power of the Holy Spirit. And the result was so shocking. Within one year, the church exploded. The Methodist church, just as an example, doubled their membership in one single year. When did it happen? Because the singing was better? Because the preaching was awesome? No. Revival broke out and its core when a group of Korean Christians who themselves had experienced inappropriate oppression and pain decided that they were just as guilty as the Japanese before God and loved their enemy and their enemies became their brothers and sisters in Jesus. We have prayed for revival in this church for years and have seen lots of evidences But if you truly don't want to play church, if you truly don't want to just consume the product and go home, then here's the conversation to have in your connect group or even in your own walk with Jesus time. Ask God from his perspective who you hate. Ask God who you don't like, those people. And ask God to show you how lost you are just like them. And the only difference is the mercy of Jesus in your life. And begin to pray an incredibly dangerous prayer. Would you make me love people I cannot stand so much I have no clue what to do with myself anymore? You want to show to Toronto that Jesus is different than any other religion? You want to show Toronto that actually Jesus is more powerful than any politics? You want to show Toronto that Jesus is worth giving up a sexual life or a political life or another religion? This is how we show Toronto. Where Ninevites, terrorists, violent, malicious, dangerous people would be loved by God and become possibly a brother and sister of you. So here's how we end. Lord, we are determined in this church to follow after you. And yet, unlike you, we're here today and gone tomorrow. We are dust and you are not. There's no shadow in you and there's lots of shadow in us. And in a church of over 3,000 people, the sin, racism, political bias, pain, anger, unforgiveness is vast, like an uncontrollable raging sea. And so, many of us think Noah, jo- Jonah is just like, uh, until we realize how much we are him. So it's a simple thing. Number one, Holy Spirit, Father and Son, send the Spirit into Sanctus Church even more, not less. To begin to send us to people we want nothing to do with. To remind us that we were on our way to hell and we were lost and now we've been found only through mercy. Lord, begin to heal real wounds in the church that 20 years of psychology probably won't even heal. But deeper than this, Holy Spirit, we welcome you to tell us who we hate and who we distrust and who we don't like and begin to show us how to love, to call sin, sin, but still love and do the unnatural, the supernatural, the impossible with family members, friends, former colleagues, kids in grade five that hurt us, other races, backgrounds, and communities. Come do the impossible. So just like the sailors, people that would never know God will sacrifice to the true living God and make vows to him and say, oh, there is a God who is different. Amen.